Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Thus far, the reading of God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word endures forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds so that we can understand the scriptures. We pray that you would help us to be free from distraction as we focus in on the truth of your word. We ask that you would write these words on our hearts, that you would seal the truth of the gospel to us so that we know that we have Christ and that we are found in him and that we have been transformed by him. We pray that you would encourage and strengthen us and nourish us with your truth. We ask for the ministry of your spirit during this time of preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? Our passage today speaks of uh, three things about uh, being a true Christian. Uh, first of all, it speaks of our new birth. Secondly, it speaks of our loving obedience. And thirdly, it speaks of our assured victory, our new birth, our loving obedience, and our assured victory. First of all, notice how John, in talking about authentic Christianity, tells us here that a true Christian is one who is born again, or literally born from above. In verse 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, when you look at that verse, you can see that it is the new birth in our lives by God's sovereign grace that produces faith and all other saving graces. If you look at the grammar of the verse, it's very clear that the new birth happens before faith. Notice what it says there carefully in verse 1. He says, everyone who believes, present tense, ongoing action, everyone who believes and keeps on believing that Jesus is the Christ has been, perfect tense, past completed action, has been born of God. So what the grammar of that verse shows us is that our presently believing that Jesus is the Christ is the result of having been born of God in the past. The new birth is a work of God alone. God, by his sovereignty, God, by his grace and mercy, comes to us when we are dead in our transgressions and sins, and God gives us new life by his sovereign grace. Believing in Jesus in the present is the result of having been born again in the past. The way of saying this theologically is that regeneration precedes faith. 
John makes it very clear that what happens first, what is given priority in our life of grace, is that God has caused us to be born again. And if right now you are believing that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one, that is not because of how smart you are. That is not because you've exercised your free will to decide to follow Jesus. That is because God, in sovereign grace and mercy, opened up your blind eyes and unstopped your deaf ears, and he brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he, he brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so all the faith that we have is a gift from God that is the fruit of his regenerating grace in our lives. R.C. Sproul says this about regeneration preceding faith. He says, if there's one phrase that captures the essence of Reformed theology, which is just biblical theology, it is the little phrase, regeneration precedes faith. That is the power of faith, the power of believing, is not the result of an act of our will independently, but it is the fruit of God's sovereign act of changing the disposition of our hearts and giving us the gift of faith. And so we can be encouraged that if we are believing that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the anointed one, that he's the Savior that God sent into the world to be our king and rescue us from sin, that the reason we believe that is because we have been, past tense, completed action, born of God. We owe everything to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the reason why that's important is because regeneration produces faith, but faith also produces love. Look what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who has been born of him. So God has taken out our heart of stone, and he's given us a heart of flesh. He's brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's regenerated us, and now we believe in Christ. The newborn cry of the child of God is believing in Christ. And because we believe in Christ, we love all of those who are part of the family of Christ. If we love the Father, we love everyone who has been born of him. And so later on in the Bible, it, in other places, it will say in Galatians 5, 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith works through love. And then in James chapter 2, in verses 14 through 26, James talks about how true faith produces good works. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. And that if we say we have faith, that the evidence of our faith, the fruit of our faith, the demonstration of our faith is the good works of love for our brethren. So regeneration produces faith. Faith produces love. And love produces good works. And all of that goes back to the grace of God in causing us to be born again. Are you born again? Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and he said, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You can't even see the king. You can't see that Jesus is the savior. You can't have any spiritual insight unless a divine and supernatural light is immediately parted to your soul by the spirit of God 
bringing you out of the bondage of Satan, out of the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. But if you're believing in the Lord Jesus, rest assured, that is because God has worked this work in your heart. He has given you new life. He's given you new affections. He's enlightened your mind and the knowledge of Christ. He's renewed your will so that you will come to Christ. And so like Peter, if you are saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to you, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, rejoice in the new birth. Be grateful for the fact that God has given us new life. Authentic Christianity doesn't begin with an act of the sinner's will. It doesn't begin with a ritual performed by a sacerdotal priest. It doesn't begin with just a decision to turn over a leaf and decide to be a moral person. The Christian life begins with the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, the life of God in the soul of man, the God coming to the valley of dry bones and saying, live, And those bones coming alive and spirit and sinews being given to them and flesh so that it is an army of God regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been born again, he says, is a mark of authentic Christianity as he has been saying throughout this letter. Secondly, he not only talks about our new birth, he talks about our loving obedience, our loving obedience. Look how he talks about that. In verses 2 and 3, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Now, isn't that an interesting verse? If I were just to find you just outside of the context of the sanctuary today and come up to you and said, how do you know that you love the children of God? How would you finish that sentence? You might say, well, I know I love the children of God because I serve them or because I'm kind to them or because I treat others the way I want to be treated. But notice how John answers that statement there. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. How do we know when we love the children of God? When we love God, he says, and we keep God's commandments. In other words, what John is saying there is the greatest way we can love each other is by directing our attention to God and loving Him who first loved us and obeying His commands. We recognize that there's a bit of a paradox in the Christian life that we can love others by loving them less than God. Jesus even said, when you, if you would be my disciple and you are to follow me, you must hate your father and hate your mother and your brother and your sister. We know that he's not speaking absolutely, but he's saying your, your love for your family should look like hatred in comparison to your love for me. And if you're really to love others better, you must love me first. It is love for God and it is a desire to obey God's commandments that help us to love others. We love them better when we love God and keep his commandments. And so, husbands, you'll love your wives when you love God and obey His commandments. And wives, you'll love your husbands when you love God and you obey His commandments. And children, you will love your parents better and your siblings better when you love God and you keep His commandments. And that love is something that is a response to the love that He has for you, and it is produced in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But there is a love for God 
that enables us to love each other. This is not simply a matter of trying to love horizontally harder, (laughs) but it's rather knowing the love that God has for us vertically. That love that we've seen that cast out the fear of judgment. That love that sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. That love that has been poured out upon you by the Holy Spirit. That love alone will produce an obedience to God's commandments and a love for all others who name the name of Christ. But notice it's more than that. Look what he says in verse 3. For this is the love of God. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Loving God leads to keeping the commandments of God. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for Christ Love for God produces the inevitable fruit of keeping the commandments of God. But notice it's not just keeping the commandments of God that John talks about here. But it's keeping the commandments of God with delight. The commandments of God are not what? Burdensome. Or your translation might say grievous. When we know that God loves us first and he's regenerated us, and we love him who first loved us, our attitude towards the commandments of the Lord changes. Let's dwell on this for a moment because it's very important what John is teaching us here. Why is it that sometimes in the Christian life the commandments of the Lord feel burdensome? Why is it sometimes that when the word is being preached especially in passages that are calling for holy living or that are calling for us to strive to obey God's commandments, why is it that sometimes that might fall on us as bad news, as grievous, as burdensome? Because John is saying here, this is the love of God that you would keep his commandments and then it's not a burden. It's a blessing. It's a joy and you delight to keep his commandments. So what is it? What, what, case of conscience would it be in our hearts and our minds that when we hear the word of the Lord telling us to walk in the obedience of his commandments that we would feel weighed down or burdened by that there are some things that can cause that if you're seeking to keep God's commandments to earn your salvation by doing so the commandments of the Lord would be a burden wouldn't they If you think that I have to keep the commandments of the Lord perfectly as a covenant of works to earn my salvation, that that's going to come as a burden. In fact, I think that's what Peter is referring to when he he says in Acts 15, when he talks about the, the law being a yoke that neither they or their fathers could bear, a heavy yoke, because they understood it falsely as a covenant of works. They thought, by these works, I will earn my salvation. I will merit God's favor. And if you do that, you'll never be good enough because you'll always find areas of your life where there are sins and there are imperfections and you will feel a burden of the commandments because every time you hear command, you hear merit. Every time you hear command, you think covenant of works and it becomes a burden. If you're seeking to keep God's commandments without faith in God, then it becomes a burden. 
if you're just trying to keep them in your own strength without trusting in the one who gave the commandments, the commandments will be a burden. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And so if you're trying to obey the commandments of God in your own strength, that's going to run empty. And it's going to lead to burnout and it's going to lead to defeat. It's going to lead to a feeling of a weight upon you. Because faith produces obedience. Faith in Christ connects us to the one who gives us the strength to live in obedience to the commands of God. But if you're trying to do it apart from the vine, if you're trying to do it just in your own strength, without trusting in the one who gave his word, it will be a burden every time. If you're seeking to keep God's commandments without understanding the goodness of God who gave them, the commandments will be a burden as well. You realize when God gives us commandments, he has our good in mind. So when he tells us do not commit adultery, he's not trying to deny something pleasant. He's trying to protect something sacred. Just like when he says you shall not commit murder, he's not trying to deny something pleasant. He's trying to protect something sacred, life. Or he's protecting the sanctity of truth because he loves truth and truth is good. And the command you shall not bear false witness are the purity of worship and you shall have no other gods before me. Or our need for rest and his giving the Sabbath day. In all the commandments of God, the intention of our Father is good. He wants us to live. He wants us to be His image bearers. He wants us to live in fellowship and communion with Him. But if you think that God is holding out on you, or if that God is somehow doesn't have your good in mind, then the law, the commandments become a burden. You think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What does Satan attack? He attacked the truthfulness of the word, but also the goodness of God. God doesn't want you to have it. God doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. And if you think that the commandments of God are just killing your happiness, cramping your style, then those commands are going to weigh down on you like a burden. You see, God not only wants us to conform to the standard, but he wants us to love the standard. And if you just seek to live your life conforming to the standard and not loving the standard because you love the standard giver, the law and the commandments will be a burden. If you seek to keep the commandments because you're trying to please someone other than God, the commandments will be a burden. Kids, if you just come to church because your parents say you got to go to church and you got to go to church because that's a family rule and that's what God says and that's what I got to do and it'll make my parents happy and mom will be off my case. <laughs> it's a burden. It's treating it like a burden. Husbands, wives, you just go to seek to do things, whether it's going to church or reading the word or refraining from a certain sin because of your spouse and you don't want to be nagged or you don't want to be hassled, then the commandments of God will sound like a burden because you're trying to please someone, either yourself or another human being, other than Christ. And so we recognize there are this, this mentality that we can have where we hear commands and all we hear is the thunderclap of Sinai and that is not what John is talking about. We as Christians now have a new relationship to the commands of the Lord. So what, what relationship is that that 
helps us to see these commands as a blessing rather than a burden. How can we keep these commands and, and them not be a burden? A couple things to think about. Christ fulfilled the law for us. In terms of a covenant of work, Jesus obeyed every single commandment in the Bible for us. He was tempted in every way we are, yet he never sinned. Genuine human temptation, but he never sinned. In fact, he was so confident of that, he once said, which one of you accuses me of sin? Because he was holy, righteous, undefiled, and perfect. He committed no sin, the scripture says, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Perfect humanity, perfect obedience to the law. And he did that to fulfill the covenant of works which we broke in Adam. And he perfectly obeyed all the commandments of God. And when he died on the cross, he died with all of our sin and all of our guilt being transferred to him. And it was punished in him. And he drank the cup of wrath down to its dregs. He bore the judgment we deserve. He experienced the curse of the law. He experienced the condemnation of the law. And the law has been by Christ fulfilled in our behalf. The condemning power of the law is gone. And so when you hear about the commandments of the Lord, if all of a sudden you feel this sense as a Christian of condemnation, or if you feel a sense of curse, or if you feel a sense of you're worthless and God would never want you and you're bad, you need to remind yourself that Christ fulfilled the law for you. Christ died the death you deserve to die. Christ went into the outer darkness so that you could come into the everlasting light. And you need to remind yourself, yes, I've broken the law. Yes, I deserve hell. Yes, I deserve wrath. But Christ died for me. I need no other argument. I need no other plea, the hymn says. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That is a reality. And that motivates us to obey the law to obey the commandments. We sing in that great hymn to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. The law of God is a transcript of the character of God. The law of God is the life of Christ codified because Christ lived and fulfilled that law. So how can we say we love Christ and not love the law? It is the very character of God. It's the reflection of who he is. It is that which Christ fulfilled to save us. And so it becomes a joy because the curse is gone. The, the condemning power is gone. Because we come to Christ who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In the hands of Moses, the law of God is a weight that we cannot bear. It's a yoke that no one could stand, it says in Acts 15. But in the hand of Christ, the nail-pierced hands of Christ, it is a delight to obey. It is the joy of our heart. And with David, we're able to say, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It is sweeter than honey and more precious than the drippings of honeycomb because Christ fulfilled it for us and we're not under its curse, but we are 
obligated to obey its commands. We also understand in terms of not seeing it as a burden is that God loves us. And he's given these commands for our good. Sometimes we contrast law and grace in an unhealthy way, I think. When it comes to justification, our right standing with God, we should keep law and grace very separate, right? Because we're not justified on the basis of obeying the law. And we leave the law, and we look to Christ, and we trust in him for our right standing with God. It is grace, not law. However, when it comes to sanctification, we should not contrast grace and law in that same way. But rather, when it comes to our sanctification, we should recognize the grace of law. The law is a gift. The law is a gift that God originally gave to his redeemed people. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out of the house of bondage. And he said, now you are redeemed. You have been rescued from the Egyptians. They drowned in the Red Sea. I'm feeding you with bread from heaven and water from the rock. And I've given you this law to show you what it looks like to live as my redeemed people. Not to earn anything, but because I'm a good father who wants to show you what it's like to live a life honoring to God. And when you recognize that, you can pray through Psalm 119 and delight in the commands and the statutes and the rules of the Lord because they're good, because they don't condemn you, they call you, they summon you, that by the grace of Christ and the work of the Spirit in your life, you want to live and please God. And that's the other thing that keeps the law from being a burden. When you're truly born again, you want to please God. Don't let anyone ever tell you that striving to please God is legalism. The desire to please God is the fruit of regeneration. That's the aim of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That's black ink on white paper. We make it our aim to please him. If you are truly born again, not because you got to, but because you get to, because it's a blessing, you want to please him. That comes with the new birth, and you strive to live a life that is pleasing to God because the commandments are for your good, because you've been released from the condemnation and curse of the law, and you want to live for your Savior, to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey, to live for him who first loved you. So it is the love of God, when, when you know that God loves you, and you love God in return, you then, verse 3, keep his commandments, and the commandments become a delight to you. You say, I love the fact that God has given us a Sabbath day. What a, a day, a whole day to be with him. What a gift, a whole day to rest. I love the fact that God commands purity because it is best for me. It is best for my family. It's best for society. It glorifies him and shows his faithfulness when I am as pure as it's possible for a justified sinner to be. I love that God cares so zealously for truth that he says, you shall not covet or you shall not bear false witness because I want to be honest because he is a truthful God. I love that he tells me don't covet 
because he's all I need. I don't need these other things that I'm tempted to, to, to desire and to make idols of because God is the lover of my soul and I'm satisfied with him. I've tasted and seen that he is good and I found refuge in him. You see, there is a new birth. There is a joyful obedience. But also notice he brings this to a, a pinnacle here with there is an assured victory. Look what he says. I love it. In verse 4, he says, everyone, no one's left out here, everyone, every Christian, everyone who has been born of God overcomes. You could translate it, conquers the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we've seen this use of the word world earlier on in our study of John. The word world refers to the world system. That is the system of unbelief and rebellion against God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It is the, the system that permeates the fallen world. The world that God originally created good, but now it is fallen because of the, the sin of Adam and our sin in him. And now it is a world of sin and misery. And that world seduces us. It entices us. It tempts us. It is around us. And we're constantly facing it. We were told earlier on in 1 John, do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so we recognize the great power of the world. But notice, true Christianity is never cynical. It is never pessimistic, but rather it is optimistic and confident because what he says here, he says, everyone who's been born of God overcomes, conquers, triumphs over that world. That there is victory in Jesus. We who are born again can have confidence as believers. This is true Christianity. We who have been born again by the grace of God, we can have confidence that we will overcome the unbelieving world system of sin and sensuality and lies because we are in Christ and Christ has overcome the world. Remember what Jesus said in John 16 and verse 33? I've spoken these things to you so that you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, why? I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world. And in him we overcome the world too. All who are born of God overcome that world in Jesus. What do we overcome? We overcome the world's lies. We know the truth, and the truth has set us free. This world is full of lies about God, about man, about humanity, about our purpose for life. But in Christ, because we're born again, we've overcome those lies. We've seen that we've been anointed with the Holy Spirit, and we have all knowledge. We have the knowledge to know about the Antichrist we saw earlier on. And so we don't have to be afraid that we're going to be deceived, because we are overcomers of the lies of this world. We've overcome the world's hatred. What characterizes this fallen world of sin and misery and evil more than hatred? Look at the Middle East, but look at our own nation. Look at the hatred you can see. You can see it in a personal level. You can see it among nations fighting with one another. That is the world lost in sin. 
But we are told in Romans chapter 12 that we are not overcome by evil, but we are those who overcome evil with good. We don't respond evil for evil, but we have been forgiven, and so we forgive and we forbear because we are in Christ. We overcome lies. We overcome hatred. We overcome the sinful seductions of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In Christ, we are actually able to overcome sin progressively, gradually, never perfectly in this life, but there is real victory in Jesus. There is not just a ticket to heaven, but there is real victory in Jesus over your, sin, over your sin struggles, believer. You can overcome sin. You can grow in godliness. You can be different. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. There is real hope for change. There's real hope for transformation in this life, but also assured in the life to come when we're glorified, we overcome the seductions of this world. We overcome the world's despair. What characterizes the world more than the despair of life? Angst, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of meaninglessness. If there is no God, all things become permissible. And if there is no God and there is no meaning and there is no Christ and there is no cross and there is no gospel, why live? But we've overcome that despair and hopelessness because Christ has died for our sins. He's risen from the dead and we rise with him. And we have hope for now. We have hope for the future over the world's despair. Also, we can overcome the world's fate. What did John told us earlier on? He said... The world and its desires are what? Passing away. The world and its desires are passing away, but he who does the will of God will abide forever. This world is passing away. It's a fleeting thing. Life is a vapor. It's here and it's gone, and it's groaning under the pains of childbirth. There is a futility to this world and to a transient nature to it. But in Christ, we have a destiny that far surpasses that of this world. We will abide forever. What is the victory that overcomes the world? It is our faith. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world except he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That truth of Jesus the Son of God, the Lord of glory, the one who has brought redemption to this world, who is Savior and Judge, who is prophet, priest, and king, who is the mediator between God and man. That Jesus and faith in that Jesus overcomes all things. It overcomes all the anti-Christian philosophies and theologies and worldviews and systems that are in the world. It overcomes all the sinful temptations and, and deceptions of the evil one. That when we are in Jesus and our faith is in Jesus, there is the assurance of complete, total victory. We are overcoming the world, and bless God, we shall overcome the world forever. What good news is that? Do we live in light of that victory? Or have we developed an attitude of defeat? Do we speak of the Christian life in a way that the world overcomes the Christian? 
And that's the normal Christian life. That those who are born of God are continually and increasingly overcome by this world. Or do we believe the glad tidings of God's word? That not only in Christ do we have a great pardon in the forgiveness of sins, we're adopted into his family as his children, but also we are part of a new creation. We, our very nature has been changed. We have been given a seed of life in us. And now all saving graces that are flowing from us are flowing from us because of that work of the new birth that God has done by grace alone. And the very commands of God are new to us. They're no longer a burden, but they're a blessing. And we want to walk in the commands because the commands of the Lord are right and true and good and life-giving. And then do we lift up our heads, for we know our redemption draws nigh. Do we lift up our heads with confidence, knowing that we will not shrink from shame at his coming, because we are found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus. Jesus gives us this hope. Jesus gives us this life. Jesus calls us to this victory. Man, this is so much more important than marking up a $20 bill or a $50 bill or a $100 bill in a grocery store. You'll want to have it right. And God's word is a lamp into our feet and is a light into our path so it would show us what the truth is of Christ and those who have been found in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you tell us plainly in your word of the hope of Jesus, the reality that not only have you given us new life and we believe in Jesus because you have caused us to be born again, and not only do we want to walk in delight as we obey your commandments, but also you have assured us that we are victors through Christ our Lord. So often, Lord, we feel defeated. So often we look at the world and we see only despair. But Lord, when we come to your word, we're reminded that we are overcomers through Christ and that you are not only bringing us from grace to glory, but also you have built your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But rather, your kingdom will fill the earth as far as the waters cover the sea and you will bring your will down to this earth and your kingdom down to this earth as it is already done in heaven. And we can have confidence and hope and joy that even now we are participating in that great tide of victory. And may we rejoice in all that we have in Jesus. We pray these things in his great name. Amen.